This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1955. And Amy, you want to see a monkey? The film, Rebel Without a Cause. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are watching great films and determining if we should shoot them into space for aliens to see in the future. I mean, that's really what we're doing here, Amy. We're creating the, the best films of all time. Our list right here for the aliens to see. Our list. We love this planet. This planet has given us many great movies. I'm a little nervous about this planet. So let's take what we love from it, send it into space. I would like to join. Now, because we are sending it into space, what kind of alien do you picture watching this film? We saw online, someone said, I picture a xenomorph, which is uh, the the aliens from Alien, uh, watching these films. But I, I've always kind of pictured more of a, a Mac and me style alien, you know, uh, or maybe a Howard the Duck kind of alien. He is an alien, technically. Uh, <laughs> what, what about you? You know... Now that you mention it, last night, my best friend sent me a video from 1986 of a robot pretending to be an alien introducing James Brown because he loves our planet because our planet has so much funk. It's a video from 1986. I'm pretty sure the robot is played by the the robot from Rocky IV, R.I.P. Word is Stallone's going to cut that robot out of the movie. I'm very upset about this. Not cool, Stallone. But I would like to imagine this robot who appreciates funk music, who sees the good in Earth. I would like to imagine that robot as as a cineast. You know, by the way, I'm realizing I didn't even mean to make this plug. I'm on a brand new Disney Plus show called Earth to Ned, and it's a Jim Henson show where an alien sucks up people from Earth and you go on a spaceship and you talk to him about Earth. He's trying to learn about Earth. So I am on that. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus right now. Uh, Earth to Ned. I'm in one of the uh, episodes there. Uh, So I'm already doing due diligence here, Amy. I'm getting the word out (laughs) to the alien race. You know, we talked in the past about a brand new game show that we are doing uh, as a spinoff of Unspooled. It's going to be on Stitcher Premium, and we want guests. And we also want to kind of tell you what the show is about, see if it's up your alley. And I think it will be, because the fun thing about this show is you don't have to really know a lot of movie trivia. You just have to love movies. 
Exactly. It is a show designed for people like me who, when you ask me a specific fact, my mind goes completely blank. I am like the Saharan Desert in Lawrence of Arabia. I will never tell you a name or a year. It is beyond me. I am right with you, Amy. I don't remember who was in what. I just remember that I loved it. And this show is a little bit more like remote control. It's fun. It's about being creative. It's about thinking on your feet. And uh, we'll play you a little clip from our pilot episode to take a listen to. Screen tests. All right, Sam. So uh, we hear you're a fast talker. But in addition to being a fast talker, can you tell us a tale? In this next game, you will have 30 seconds to recount an entire movie to the best of your ability. <laughs> if you don't know something, make it up. Remember, performance counts. You will hear this noise at 15 seconds and at 10 seconds. So use your time wisely. <clears throat> All right. So you have 30 seconds to tell us the entire film of The Godfather. And I'll give you a second to gather your thoughts. 30 seconds. You're going to tell us everything that happened in The Godfather. All right. Use your time wisely. We're going to start the clock now. All right, so we bo- uh, open on a bunch of Italian people. They're vague Italian people, generic Italian people. It's some sort of wedding. There's a favor that's going to be had. There's Somebody's upset. A bunch of people are happy. Other people are happy. There's some sort of mafia undertone. People are angry. People are happy. There is an undercurrent of violence and anger, but also uh, uppy, peppy uh, Italian music. And then the, the thing goes wrong. The man gets shot. You didn't see him. He's in the tollway, and there's guns, and there's things. You have to drop the gun before you go. It's not actually Mario Brando. He wasn't that fat. There's going to be three more of these. One of them is not that great. You can just and to the 30 seconds. That is it. You spent a lot of time on the way. A lot of time. A lot of time wasted just on the opening scene of the film. Uh, so that's just a little taste of what happens on the show. And we really want people who want to have fun and be creative with us. There are points for being uh, the most creative in the show. So do you want to be on screen test? Yeah, I thought I thought you did. Here's what you're going to do to apply to be on screen test. Just take a quick cell phone video of yourself. Less than a minute. Totally fine. Saying yeah. your name. And telling us, let's say, say your favorite film and what movie character you'd like to be stuck on a desert island with. Ooh, I like those questions. And then send it to us uh, at our Gmail account at unspooledpod at gmail.com. That's unspooledpod at gmail.com. And we also have a brand new place for unspooled listeners to hang out. If you don't have Facebook, if you don't have Twitter, we have created... Uh, a place for unspooled fans. We've been beta testing it for a couple of weeks now, and it is a place called Geneva. We're going to link to it in the show notes here. You can just uh, click in, and then you are going to be a part of this uh, vibrant community. And there's a section on Geneva where you can actually upload a video of yourself uh, and submit to be on screen test. So uh, get into the conversation on Geneva. It's been so much fun, and we are now officially opening it to everyone. uh, And it's a great place for people who are a little social media phobic because it's totally private. It's only the people uh, that are unspooled fans. And, you know, Amy, speaking about a very cool club, uh, we're going to be talking about one of the coolest clubs and one of the coolest loners of all time today on this big, big episode, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. I've never seen it. Ah, well, you would have if they had not kicked it off the 1997 AFI list, but they did. I mean, no spoilers. I have no idea why this is kicked off the AFI list. But uh, are you ready to, uh, how shall we say, unspool it? Oui, monsieur. Why, why am I back? I don't know why we're still French, but that was last week's episode. <laughs> anyway, let's unspool it. <laughs> the year is 1955, and somebody ought to call the Guinness Book because this is a year of first. 
The first seatbelt laws were drafted. The first use of Velcro was documented. And the first Legos are built. The Mickey Mouse Club debuts on ABC. Peter Pan, starring Mary Martin, becomes the very first Broadway play to be televised live. And Disneyland opens its doors. McDonald's restaurants, frozen fish fingers and Coca-Cola in cans all make their first appearance. And oh yeah, the very first Guinness Book of World Records is published. It's also imperative to note that this is the year that Rosa Parks is arrested for not giving up her seat and Emmett Till is murdered. Also, this is the year that James Dean dies from a car crash a month before the release of this film. And this year's notable films include Oklahoma, Guys and Dolls, East of Eden, also with James Dean, Marty, and today's subject, Rebel Without a Cause. Let's listen to a clip. What's the matter with you anyhow? He's just loaded, honey. I was talking to Jim. Well, I'd uh, like to just explain. You see, we just moved here, you understand, and the... Uh... Kid hasn't got any friends. You understand? Hey, well, and we moved, moved into it. Will you hold it, Jim? Tell, him, tell him, man, why we moved here. Will you hold it? You can't protect me. Do you mind if I try? Do you, do you have to slam the door in my face? <laughs> I try to get to him. What happens? Don't I buy everything you want? A, a bicycle? You get a bicycle. A car? You buy me many things. No, no. Well, not just buy him. We give you love and affection, don't we? Well, then what is it? Was it because we went to that party? Well, you know what kind of drunken brawls those kind of parties turn into. It's not a place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! That's a fine way to behave. Well, you know who he takes after. All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Rebel Without a Cause, it is the tragedy of three teenagers who all hate their parents. You know, when this movie comes out in 1955, the word teenager had only recently come into popularity. So pop culture was trying to figure out who these kids were and why they were so screwed up. The three high school students in this film are Natalie Wood as Judy, Sal Mineo as Plato, and of course, James Dean as Jim. You can call him Jamie if he likes you. And these three kids first spot each other at a juvenile delinquency office. And from there, their lives immediately become entangled in a dramatic 24 hours of switchblades and planetariums, car races, gunfire, two deaths, and lots of screaming at their fathers. This movie was directed by Nicholas Ray, who is definitely worth talking about as his own kind of rebel. And if you're wondering how shocking Rebel Without a Cause was for 1955, well, very. Because when you take that and rewind it back, Rebel hits theaters on October 27th, 1955, and that is six months before Elvis Presley releases his first single, which means the Billboard charts were still clinging to innocence. And if you were taking your date to see the new James Dean movie and then to, you know, make out at Lover's Lane, you would be kissing to this sweet song by the Four Aces, which is not music to switch back to. I like it. Uh, very, very sweet. Very kind. Very sweet. Very kind. Very kind. And as in everything you were describing, the culture is about to get a dramatic shakeup. This film being part of it. Rock and roll is now here. You know, Amy, uh, I said earlier, I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause, but I'm going to even go further and say this to you. Really uh, embarrassed to say this. Never have I seen a James Dean film. Well, there's only three. You know, it's kind of a crapshoot. I mean, it's, it's a yeah, hard to hit that target. Yeah, but he is an iconic figure. And I have to say, after watching this movie, I get it. 
I get it. I think I've always <laughs> been um, afraid of James Dean or just like, ah, uh, it just felt to me. I don't know why I put James Dean and Elvis together. And it's interesting you're mm-hmm. talking about this idea of what where the culture is going. And there is something about him where I was like, I'm not going to think this character's cool. I'm not going to think that he's got a swagger or a sex appeal. It's going to feel forced and weird. And I couldn't be further from the reality. I mean, he is the epitome of cool. And as a matter of fact, I feel like he is the baseline of this new movement. And in many respects, I think that people are basing their attitude and energy kind of on this performance. Would you agree? Well, it's interesting you say that, you know, because it's hard to talk about James Dean without talking about Brando, who was an icon to him, somebody whose career he really looked up and emulated. And then these two actors come out, change Hollywood in their combined, like, T-shirt, tight, muscular, method acting energy. And people like Martin Sheen actually said something very close to what you're saying. He said, you know, Brando changed the way we acted, but Dean changed the way that we lived. That's so interesting. And I feel like James Dean in this film in particular really is hands on in what this movie is. I I feel like we're watching a version of James Dean here. I don't think we're watching a character. Uh, And I've heard theories that like James Dean was really directing or co-directing, co-writing, you know, he and Nicholas Ray would be together at the Chateau Marmont, like literally recreating sets and getting in each other's faces. And they had this really interesting energy, but this was James Dean's movie for better or for worse, uh, as far as how people viewed him on set, which I don't think was always super positive. I think Jim Backus, who plays his dad, was quoted as saying like, he was a weird boy. You know, before a scene, he would lie on the floor in a fetal position. And for 15 minutes, we'd wait around and then they'd say action and he'd pop up and just nail the scene. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think people the are older reacting. actors called in the set like uh, Backus and Andorin, who were playing his parents, definitely called his fetal position thing, quote, a bunch of crap. But you can't deny that he is electric in every scene. And, and let's just talk about the opening scene I'm like, get these credits out of here. I just want to watch him lying on the ground with that like Manchichi monkey. It's such a dynamic way in to him. He's drunk. He's on the ground. We don't know much about him. We we get to hear little things uh, about this family and who he is. But that opening him on the ground there in that that struggle that he's having. And and I think part of it is drunk, but you can see an emotional turmoil going on right from the very beginning. Yeah. I I mean, in that opening shot, you can kind of glean all these little things about him. You know, he's a guy who doesn't care about his image or his clothes. Like he's lying down on this dirty asphalt and he is deep down, no matter how cool he looks, still a child. You know, he's playing with a toy. He's playing with a monkey, which I think is kind of maybe some sort of a reference to this idea of, Teenagers are supposed to be performing monkeys, like clap your cymbals, make your parents happy, Mm. do what you want to make them proud. But what he does isn't like, oh, I'm too cool to play with a a robot monkey. He tucks it in like a child. He's he's a caretaker. He builds it a little pillow with a leaf. He he naps next to it on the concrete. I mean, right away, you're aware that this is a small, strange child himself, no matter how he looks. And also right out of focus in the background, you have that sign that says danger, keep out. So there's oh, this wow. tension already in that scene. How old is he supposed to be? I couldn't quite put my head around that because he didn't feel like a teenager. I guess he is. 
How old is he supposed to be in this film? Like 17? Yeah, I'd say around 17. Mm. I mean, 17 is the age of of um, Nicholas Ray's son. Okay. I feel like there's a... Yeah, 17 was an age that interested him. You know, and uh, just to talk about that opening scene one more time, uh, that was improvised. That was a moment, apparently they'd been shooting the movie for hours and hours. It was super late at night. And uh, James Dean told Nicholas Ray, just roll the camera on me right now. Roll the camera on me. He got on the ground and then did that scene. Um, And then they just placed it in the film, Um, which when I say it out loud, I'm like, huh. But then how did the monkey come into the police precinct? I don't know. Maybe that was. I actually know. Oh, actually know. Yeah. they, They shot a scene before this that was supposed to open the scene. The movie was supposed to start with. You know, all of the hoodlums, you know, the guys at the right. school that he's not cool enough to hang out with or they're not trusting him to be cool enough to hang out with them yet. What they do is because it's Easter and, you know, kids go nuts on Easter. Oh, Everybody knows that. Lock your doors on Easter. Halloween and Easter, the two most dangerous yeah. nights. They're driving around the neighborhood and they come across a guy who's selling toys on the street to give to your kid for Easter. Uh, okay. And they beat him up and attack him and that monkey spills out onto the floor. And then Nicholas Ray was like, you know what? This is maybe too aggressive of a way into the group, maybe too aggressive of a way to even frame these kids. So he cut out that and just had James Dean stumble across the toy that they left behind after their attack. Well, I will say that, you know, you just talked about something that I really want to get into, which is the creation of this character, which was originally a much more nerdy character. He was a nerd that the the bullies bullied. And here, what he has created is this cool loner it's a different type of isolated person right he doesn't have to be a nerd to be picked on i actually think the the movie is stronger because he's not and i think it actually gives so much more conflict to the overall theme of the film because he could be in that gang in many respects like he shares similarities with them he's not he's not afraid of anything he will knife fight he will car chase he will he will put himself in danger time and time again so that choice was really interesting. And originally they were going to shoot it in black and white and they actually shot some scenes in black and white. And you can see in those scenes, he's wearing glasses. Like he's supposed to be a little bit more nerdy. And when they went to color, that's when they adopted the red and everything just kind of stepped up. Um, and what a great choice, because I think it makes the movie so much more um, complex because I can't help but think, and I, I know we're talking about this film and, and when it's coming out, but there's an idea of masculinity and, you know, dare I say, like toxic masculinity. There's a lot of issues going on, like who is really a man and, and you know, what do we want from other people? And there's so much of that going on here. And by making him that character, I think it, it, it just elevates the entire film. This movie takes place over 24 hours, which is kind of insane. It gets a little bit lunatic when you're heading towards dawn. But you definitely feel like if this movie played out more in like a Mean Girls universe where you get a whole semester where like a month or two get to go by. Absolutely. I mean, James Dean is going to be like the head of that gang. You know, there's a reason I almost feel like why they're picking on him right away. It's like, oh, this guy's too cool. We don't want him coming into our spot. We're a little threatened by how cool he is. Yeah. And so we have to exorcise him at the beginning. But what I think is so interesting in the way that James Dean plays that is he seems from the very beginning like he's afraid of himself. 
He knows that he likes to live too dangerously. He knows that he is a threatening person with weak, with weaknesses that make him rage out. He knows that he needs boundaries. In a way, that's what he's asking for almost more than anything this entire film is like, I need boundaries. I need to know what to do and what to not to do. I need somebody to help me because I am basically like a bottle rocket who's always about to explode. Well, I mean, that's the core of this film that I really, really identified with was the relationship with him and his father and how his father is is in many ways uh, a pushover and perceived as feminine right and and this movie does a a, a big part in making uh his dad appear to be so weak and 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 that's what he's rebelling against in a way like you know why can't you stick up to me why can't you be a man you know there but when they put him in that like that apron and you see him on the floor you know trying to put together the the uh you know, the tray that's built on the floor, there, there is such a, a hatred of weakness. And I feel like a lot of his energy is is trying not to appear weak like his father. You know, I think that that's a driving force of this character. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading some interesting things this week about how so much of what's motivating the world right now is a fear of being weak and how a fear of being weak or looking weak has metastasized into yeah. a lot of the awful behavior I think we're seeing um, in this country and beyond. And the movie is playing with that all the way back here in the 1950s. I want to listen to that dad scene because the way that Nicholas Ray films it, it's almost half melodrama, noir, you know, the dark staircase and the calling out to somebody. But yeah, he, right away at the beginning of this clip, you hear him mistake his dad for his mom. And that's even before you see his dad enter in this frilly yellow apron. Mom? Mom? Hi, Jimbo. You thought I was mom? Yeah. Well, Carl's out. I was getting mom some supper. She doesn't feel too well. What'd you do? Drop it? Yeah. You dropped it? Yeah. Let her see it. What? Let her see it. What can happen? She's... so interesting is like the movie takes it right here at this point until kind of like a Freudian psychosexual my dad is my mom and where are all the boundaries and what is a man supposed to be in a way I think like James Dean has kind of a retrograde view of masculinity in this whole film you know he's like oh yeah. if my dad slapped my mom around my life would be better which are like what dude what are you talking about whereas when I see this film it seems like the real issue starting from the beginning is that his dad is just too kind, you know, too like right. boys will be boys Too like buying him out of trouble. He there's an a line that James Dean says in the film where he says, uh, you know, uh, like, I don't want to make friends or I'm not here to make friends. Right. Like and I buy that from him. And I think that the idea that his dad is. The friendly guy, the nice guy, like he doesn't want to be nice. And I think this is what I'm talking about with wrestling with masculinity. It's like 
if you are nice, you are somehow weaker. You know, I, I just want to go through like, you know, the father's not masculine. The best friend, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit, is smitten with him because he is masculine and is Salminio gay in this film. I think he is. I think that, that, that they're, they could never outwardly show it. But it seems so like there's a portrait of like Alan Ladd in his locker, uh, you know, or, oh, or our Shane. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of shade in this movie, which we should definitely talk oh, about. I, the- there's another movie in this movie that I'm, I think I really <laughs> I cannot wait to talk to you about. But I yeah. mean, like, but, and no, it, but yeah, like apparently on the set, Nicholas Ray told Salminio that he he wanted him to look at James Dean as though James Dean was his driver's license. Because Salmonio couldn't oh, drive, wow. so he was a New Yorker kid. So he's like, look at him like he's your driver's license, like he's your way out. And Dean went to Salmonio and he said, no, look at me the way that I look at Natalie Wood. And you get that. You understand that. I mean, it's like there's so much there. And, and just continue on with this idea, like Buzz is afraid of Jim's masculinity. Is it taking away from me? Does my girlfriend find him more sexy? And then the father is afraid of his daughter coming out. There's so many issues here about what it is to be a man and what is acceptable to be a man. And, uh, and of course it's, I think the subtext here is because of the method and because of James Dean and because of Nicholas Ray really imbuing something that feels on the surface, like a, I don't know, like a throwaway film. This movie on the surface is like a, I don't know what you would call it, not an exploitation film, but like a very like, all right, yeah, rebel without a cause. Boom. We're out. You know, it's, it doesn't seem like it, in well, other it feels hands. a little exploita- exploitation because it starts so many exploitation films that are basically trying to be Rebel Without a Clause. So it's almost right. hard, I felt like, to watch this and not see the, like, reefer madness that's going to come out of this yeah. film. No, I, I totally agree. And I feel like they elevated the material here. So you have these scenes where, like, he's choking his father. And it's like, and even the scene with Natalie Wood and her dad, like, you're like, wow, this scene is darker and deeper than this movie. Like I kept on being brought in by how dark it was. I mean, we're talking about this movie that comes out in the fifties and it feels so alive and so like, you know, for lack of a better term, fucked up. And I think I'm not, I'm constantly surprised at the material that's getting out at this time. Cause I've always viewed this movie as, Oh, it's going to be like hacky. He's going to wear the red coat. He's going to smoke and he's going to drive a car. And it's, it's going to be so fifties. It's going to be, you know, like, cool but not like it is actually legitimately cool i'm like this guy is fucking cool i love watching him i don't know like i again it's my same love affair that i had with marlon brando it's like yeah i'm in this is great i don't think i don't find your acting to be uh stilted i don't know why i always thought his acting was stilted in my mind james dean i just wrote him off as like being stilted but pretty yeah there's so fresh much freshness in the way that he moves You know, the way that he like stands, he gets on desks, he climbs low, he gets on the ground. He's always touching things, rubbing people's pants, touching tables. I mean, he kind of walks through this movie like as though all the props are these talismans, you know, like he's Mm. touching them to make sure that he's present in this moment to exist right where he stands. But he feels so fresh. And it's interesting because in a way you would think that he at this moment, James Dean might have thought this film was beneath him. It wasn't really his dream to do. Like earlier in the year, this year, he came out and he did East of Eden, like you mentioned, which was a big prestigious hit, the kind where you're like, oh, I'm a serious actor. Right. And then he was supposed to do Giant right after this, which he does film, you know, another like big studio prestige picture. And this one, especially right when it was coming together and it was just a little black and white film directed by Nicholas Ray, it was kind of considered a little bit of a trash picture. It's like, 
I don't know. I'm trying to think of, you know, Emma Stone comes into existence and you're like, you're amazing. Who are you? By the way, we want you to be in I'm a killer babysitter part three. And she's like, what? But then she's the best part of I'm a killer babysitter part three. You know, that's sort of what happened here with Rebel Without a Cause becoming such a good movie. And then the great irony is like, because he is just so cool in this movie, this one above the other two that he thought were lesser and that the studios thought were lesser and not really worth him is what makes him such an icon. I mean, he has ascended to that very small level of like, I'm a cardboard cutout on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes. I feel like like there are only a few actors that like, if we had to say, what is Hollywood draw people's face? We would draw his, which is insane when he's only done three movies. Well, him and Marilyn Monroe, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, are of a similar cloth. I want to say one thing about the the trash picture element. Would you consider Marlon Brando doing The Wild One kind of like the same idea? Like, this is a movie that's, you know, they'll be charismatic, but at the, at the, at the end of the day, this is not like a prestige picture. Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing that's in common with both of these pictures and both of these actors at this time is in contrast to, you know, the new Hollywood era and all of the rebels that we know who were influenced by both of them. They are still having to work within a studio system, more or less, you know, people who are used to packaging their talent and selling them the way that they sell Natalie Wood, for example, who's in this movie. You know, here's your training. Here's what you do. Here are your dance lessons. You are a product. And both of them come into these into this industry and refuse to be the product that they're tried to be made. Well, they become the actor auteur, right? Like from what I understand of James Dean, what we already talked about. The idea that he comes in here and he goes, all right, this might be a trash picture, but I'm not going to let it be a trash picture. I'm going to push it forward. I'm going to carry it on my back. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, you have actors that will always make a film better because, all right, Denzel Washington's in this. It's going to be at a level that will be like a B plus. Like, I feel like most Denzel movies are like a B plus. And it's just the sheer weight of the charisma of the actor and, and the actor understanding how they need to be perceived. I think Tom Cruise is like that. There's, I was just you know, going to say Tom Cruise, yeah. You know, there's that level of, I know how to carry this movie. And I think beyond yeah. that- like, It's shocking how few bad movies either of them have done. Like, yeah, I don't they, think, I would not say that Tom Cruise has done a bad movie once he's been in control. Maybe some of them have been sleepy. Maybe I'm getting a little restless, but none of them are bad. It's not no, Bruce Willis. They understand what they're making. And I think the difference between Brando and- Okay, James okay, Dean, Josh wanted me to say The Mummy. Fine. <laughs> well, come on. That's uh, <laughs> that's a birth of a whole franchise. Um, but there there is this um, energy from Brando and James Dean that it's not only am I going to make the movie better because I'm in it, but I'm going to make the movie better artistically because I believe there's more things to say internally. And this idea of the method, and we talked about the method a lot in Streetcar, so I don't want to like overdo it. But uh, I thought it was really interesting that Brando was up for this part. And I wanted to play you his audition for this role just to see how he would do it. Because I think we've talked about Brando a lot in the past. And uh, and here's two people from the same perspective. And interestingly enough, they're going out for the same role. And, you know, so here, take a look. Action. Harold, when did you get that? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you come by? Don't you think I'm good enough for you anymore? I just got back. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I just seeing you sudden like I thought you'd been back in the city a long time. It hurt me you hadn't come by. I got back today. Have you seen your folks? Yeah. 
Tried to lie to my old man. He didn't even give me a chance. He hit me before I even said anything. I hate him. I hate his stupid face. Harold, your mother was worried about you while you were away. Yeah, she was worried. Don't make me laugh. So you can kind of see the difference that he brought to that role. I mean, there's nothing in my mind, and you watch the whole thing, it's a more anger, distance performance. And I think that James Dean, while being distant, is actually very open emotionally and and not kind of carrying that weight. There's, there's a, it's, I don't know, there's something harsher there when you see Brando doing it. Yeah, all, all that James Dean wants to do is take care of people. You know, yeah. please wear my coat if you're cold. I swear my coat is warm. Let me tuck you in. Let me be your dad. I'm not getting a good dad, but I have so much dad in me to give. The third Whereas, act is him protecting Salminio, like putting his life on the line. They should have gotten out of there, right? Like he consistently is sticking up for the underdog. And I think he hates that about himself because his dad does that. But yet it's warped because he should be embracing that part of himself, but he hates that part of himself. Yeah. I mean, and if you're wondering why the words that you heard in the um, Marlon Brando clip right there aren't at all familiar from what we've seen in Rebel Without a Cause, it's because that was shot in 1947. They were talking about doing this movie all the way back then because it was based on a book that had just come out in 1944. Uh, It has a long title, but it's by a psychiatrist named Robert Lindner. And he wrote a book in 1944 called Rebel Without a Cause, The Hypoanalysis of a Criminal Psychopath. And in it, it was really just him profiling a juvenile delinquent that, as he called him, that he had met called Harold, who started to break a bunch of laws when he was 12 and then winds up driving himself kind of half blind. And he what this doctor does, Dr. Linder does, is he hypnotizes Harold and for 46 hours just interviews Harold about what makes Harold Harold. Why is Harold acting out? What is wrong with Harold? And what he winds up deciding is he calls Harold, quote, a rebel without a cause, an agitator without a slogan, a revolutionary without a program. Mm. And so there was still this almost unknowable thing. It, it feels to me like like Dr. Lindner, like this movie, so many things are tiptoeing around words that we're only now beginning to define in the years right yeah. after this. Words like psychopath, words like sociopath. Because honestly, there's things in this movie that they don't call out for being like psychopathic serial killer behavior because serial killer also hadn't been invented yet till the 70s, where when we watch this movie with our eyes today, we're like, oh, Sal Minio is straight up going to kill somebody because like, what is he in trouble for with the juvenile delinquents? Well, let here, let's let him explain. Do you have any idea why you shot those puppies, John? Is that what they called you or do you have a nickname? Plato. He was a Greek philosopher. His, you talk nice to the man now here. He's going to help you. Nobody can help me. Can you tell me why you killed those puppies, Plato? No, sir. Where'd you get the gun? My mother's drawer. Well, where's your mother tonight, Plato? She's away. Seems like she's always going away somewhere. She's got a sister in Chicago, and she's gone there for the holiday. Well, where's your father? Well, they're not together, sir. We haven't seen him now in a long time. Do you ever hear from him, son? I don't think it's right for a mother to go away and leave her child on his birthday. It's his birthday today, sir. Do you know if the boy ever talked to a psychiatrist? 
You mean a head shrinker? Oh, uh, Mrs. Crawford don't believe in them, sir. Well, maybe she'd better start. He kills puppies. I mean, now we know, like, oh, you hurt right. animals. You are straight up going to be carving up a woman before you're 22. But this, we're, they're figuring it out here. People are still figuring out what all of these things are. Yeah, and I think, wow, this is actually really interesting to me because just to pull one bit of thread through the movies we've already done, Mean Girls, also based on a, a nonfiction book about girls in a school, uh, 400 Blows, based on this, you know, the director's experience and and his own story. This, based on, you know, a nonfiction book. It's so interesting that these uh, these stories, these real-life stories, are are really creating some of the most iconic teen portrayals because they are from or based in a, in a teen world. So I think that that's just an interesting through line that I didn't even know. And we'll see it even more as we continue to go forward in this series, um, this miniseries. But yeah, you're uh, right. Like all of the films we're doing so far have this real credibility where they're based on a true story in some way. And that's why I think they last for longer because they're actually talking about something that is universal about the teen experience. There is something universal about this. This is not... You know, it's it's the anger. You don't even know where the anger is coming from. It's being bullied. It's having friends. It's trying to have love. And, and I think, you know, while this movie takes place in 24 hours, it clearly is, um, I don't know, it, it, it it's like a fairy tale, right? Like, I don't think that this movie is supposed to take place in 24 hours because in this world, you know, Natalie Wood is in love with Buzz, Buzz dies, and all of a sudden she's like, I love you. I finally know what true love is. And we've basically spent as much time as those characters have spent together uh, in real life. Uh, you know, to like, it's it's heightened. Everything is super heightened, but I think it it speaks to this idea of all these conflicting thoughts that you have as a teen, all these things. And obviously we're not driving people off a cliff and we're not, you know, shooting anyone, but these, these moments, and I think you go to Heather's and, and this angst that, you know, has a body count, which is that line from that, that film. Yeah. Let's listen to that clip where she professes love, because I want to actually talk this out with you for real. You know how I feel about Natalie Wood. Yes. And I still feel that same way. Even, you know, even knowing this movie, I mean, I think this movie is part of why I still yeah, feel you the same were way on that. Her. You were on that podcast. I don't care if Robert Wagner did it. Uh, he did the right thing. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm still trying to figure out why Natalie Wood is considered a great actress. I did see Bob Terrell and Ken and Alice. I liked her in that one. Um, but yes, let's listen to her declare love. And what I hear in this when you hear her talk is that she represents a style of acting that is everything Dean and, and Marlon were rebelling against. I mean, she'd been in the studio system since she was five. She was in Miracle of 34th Street. And all I hear when I hear her talk is a studio teacher training her elocution, and it drives me insane. What kind of a person do you think a girl wants? A man. Yes. But a man who can be gentle and, and sweet, yeah. like you are. <laughs> and someone who doesn't run away when you want them like being Plato's friend when nobody else liked him that's being strong oh wow <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> we're not gonna be lonely anymore 
for me. I love somebody. All the time I've been, I've been looking for someone to love me. And, and now I love somebody. And it's so easy. Why is it easy now? However, as much as I'm bashing her in this for sounding super phony and for that kind of disorienting thing that you're describing where it's like, you were really just in love with Buzz like an hour ago. I mean, an hour ago, Buzz drives off a cliff and there's that almost epic goddess moment where you're like, she's going to throw herself off that cliff. You know, you're almost expecting her to throw herself off that cliff. And Dean is, Dean, I think, knows that and leads her away. And now she's straight up in love with somebody else, which is definitely either one part movie magic or you can make an argument that it is so much of what her character is just all about. Like she's so desperate for male approval, any male approval, especially from her dad, whoever will love and talk to her. That is the center of her life. And there is no there there. No, but it's also like a manipulation of you see her, the joy that she has when she releases both cars to do the, the chicky, right? Um, she, it's almost as if she's excited that both of these men want her, right? Like she knows what she's doing. She's being a little bit manipulative there, or, you know, she's kind of flirting with James Dean. She's, you know, but she's still like, you know, it's like a lot of PDA with buzz there. There's an interesting dynamic going on there. Uh, but I also think that why I like her performance in this. And I agree like she's not my favorite so far. She's not my favorite. I'm more on your side than, uh, than probably most people. Um, but I think she represents a different style of family, right? She does not belong. Like when you look at all these people, it's everyone's cut from a different cloth, right? Like the, you have the gang members you have, which by the way, one was actually a real gang member and served as a consultant on the film. Uh, then you have like, James Dean's family, which is kind of like this uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf type of relationship, but we don't really get fully into, but it's there and weird. Um, And then you have, you know, Salminio, who is basically living with a housekeeper nanny situation. Father doesn't really want him. She represents the American family, the traditional American family. And we see a glimpse of how that is fucked up. And I think that's cool about this film is that, you know, it's not a, a movie from like the 2000s going, look how fucked up the 50s was. It's like, no, this is in the 50s and we're showing you how that dynamic is also weird. But I think that, anyway, she is best served in this film because she does not feel like she fits in. She's another, you know, she's another uh, flavor in this Neapolitan ice cream I like to call (laughs) Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, she's vanilla. No, um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I find her character compelling. You know, Nicholas well, Ray did not want to cast her in the role because he felt like she was exactly what you described. Yeah. But then she got into a car accident and he rushed to the hospital to see her and be like, you are a delinquent. You're in my movie. Like, it's so crazy. <laughs> like the idea that he needed her to literally be a delinquent to cast her is really uh, funny to me. Yeah, especially because he was already sleeping with her. Yeah. Oh, wait, he was sleeping with her at that point. I thought it was uh-huh. during the filming. Oh, oh no! Yeah, weird. Oh, that makes yeah. it even weirder. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And by the I way, I mean, there's a lot I want to say about Natalie Wood before we get derailed into Nicholas sure. Ray, but he is a creep. All right. Well, let's get back to that. And I just don't want to say that the only weird thing about a 43 year old dating a 16 year old is that he wouldn't cast her. Uh, but we'll get into all that in a second. Continue. But no, what the way you describe her face when 
terrible things that are happening. It is fascinating. You know, like you have all of these kids who are just so gleeful at any sign of violence in this film. You don't see actually any any regret or nervousness whenever there's a switchblade fight happening. Everybody's like, all right, all right. They're like grinning and excited. She's excited. There's this kind of blankness behind her eyes that I find really terrifying that all of the kids that she hangs out with also have. These kids who are riding like nine people in a car because I guess, yes, seatbelts had just been declared like mandatory that year. And they're like, we're going to ride without seatbelts. I don't believe in them. You can't restrain our freedom. But uh, delinquents, (laughs) the original (laughs) anti-maskers. But there is something in kind of this combination of 1955 and major Freudian problems with kids and their parents that you can never quite tell whether or not the studio's dancing around it and being coy or or what exactly is happening. Because when we first see Natalie Wood, she's in the delinquent office because she's been wandering the streets wearing bright red lipstick and a bright red dress. And they have her seated next to women of the night and the cop. Uh, He basically asks her if she's out there prostituting herself in that 1955 way. You know, you weren't out there looking for company, were you? I feel like you see her face and knowing Natalie Wood at the beginning, you're you're aghast. Like, how, how dare he accuse her of selling herself to make him pay attention? But honestly, I'm not sure she wasn't. Like, I can never quite tell in a 1955 movie like this. Maybe she was. Maybe that is how desperate she was for her dad's attention because she is so heavily made up in that scene. You know, she says her dad rubbed off her lipstick because he was mad that she was looking like a dirty tramp when they were going to the movies. But either it's like studio glam that gave her that perfect red lipstick again, or she's really doing something to act out and get his attention. No, I don't think she's a prostitute. I think that she's trying. You think she's she, thinking about being a prostitute? No, not one bit. I you think, think that she's teetering on the edge of maybe considering <laughs> it? Maybe no, the right Amy, car pulled she up? she is not. No, she is trying to act like an adult. And that's what every kid in this movie is doing. They're trying to be their parents or not be their parents. And they're out late at night and they must be up to something. And the adults, the squares don't get what could you possibly be doing, right? And they're causing mischief and mayhem. And they probably are having uh, premarital sex, you know, at that point. And, but they don't have the words for it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some version of it. She might be getting dressed up for buzz. Like, like she is up for flirting. I don't think she's up for like being a prostitute. I think that she's just wanting to get attention and that's why she's out late at night and whether whoever she falls in in line with, she'll fall in line with. It's the reason why she says, I love you to James Dean, like not even four hours after a boyfriend died. I think she's just looking for someone to say, you are pretty, you are worthy of love, you are this. So I think, yes, she is going fishing for somebody like that, but I don't think it's a transactional relationship. Do you also wonder, and I had never watched this before until this reviewing, is there any chance that she's been molested by her dad? I really want to talk about this relationship because it's interesting to me. I feel like the dad is incredibly uncomfortable with her sexuality, right? He doesn't want to be kissed by uh, his daughter who looks like a woman. Like I feel like there's a a fear of I not that he doesn't trust himself, but like the idea of like, no, like you are no longer a girl. Now I'm treating you like a woman and I will not, you know, it's a weird like wall. Like it, it feels like the wall that he's putting up is I can't be familiar with you because you're too attractive for me to be like, if you were to kiss me, it's not because I'm your dad and you're my daughter. And I think also she's trying to kiss him and, and why is she trying to kiss him? Is she trying to get 
her father's attention away from her mother. It, there, there is something at play there. I don't know. And I think this movie does a great job with the parents. You don't, it's not about the parents, but I want to see a whole movie about, you know, Jim Backus and his wife, like moving from town to town. What's up with her? Like, it seems like the mother is like, got some issues going on. Like, you know, we don't even know. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, let's listen to that. Let's listen to that scene between Elliot and her dad. Daddy. Yeah. Haven't you forgotten something? What? What's the matter with you? You're getting too old for that kind of stuff, kiddo. I thought you'd stop doing that long ago. I didn't want to stop. Did you want to stop what? Uh, nothing, nothing. I was talking to Dad. I didn't kiss her, so it's a big thing. Oh. Bertha, you may serve the souffle. Yes, ma'am. It's fish souffle. Well, you don't have to stand there, darling. Sit down and have your tomato juice. I guess I just don't understand anything. I'm tired. I'd like to change the subject. Why? I'd just like to, that's all. Girls your age don't do things like that. You need an explanation? Hi, rascal. Hi. Girls don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! Sit down! Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like he's withholding and punishing her for being sexy. Like, as though, as though we had a president who wasn't like, my daughter has a great rack. You know? Right. It, it, yeah, please sit on my lap, my daughter with a great rack. And it, then he immediately engages with his young son, like, I'm a great dad. Like, you know, there's an element that it, it's an automatic switch. So it's not like yeah. he's a bad dad. Yeah. His son, who's like doing that thing where he's a kid in a movie with a toy gun, very Shane-ish. Yeah. Fire, you're like, that's good. Men, men, fire, fire, fire. But girl, pretty. No, scary. And I guess I do understand like the idea of her bewilderment that her relationship with her father has changed for something out of her control. Maybe I'm just being unempathetic. Or, I can't imagine ever maybe... wanting to kiss my dad on the lips when I was when I was her age either. So I'm like, what do you, what do you, what is this hunger that I don't understand anymore? Or is the dad smarter to understand that she wants something more from that relationship and he's cutting it off? I mean, that's the other version of it as well. Like the dad may just be like, you got some shit going on that I don't want to get involved in, and my yeah. way of not in not engaging this is simply by not engaging you, because he gets. Um, you know, violent to her. But she also says at the beginning, like, don't tell my dad, don't tell my dad. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But then know. she's also like, I don't want my mom here. Like she just doesn't even care. Her mom just doesn't, she doesn't want to yeah. acknowledge her mother's existence at all. The, the mom seems invisible. Yeah, it's a, it's a fucked up relationship. It's a really, it's hard to parse with the information that we have. Yeah. Right. Um, because it was so delicate, even when they shot this scene, that the censors came out to watch the dad kiss scene. Everybody was freaked out about the kissing her dad scene. So they were just like wow. watching it like a hawk. You get the sense there wasn't that much leeway, which maybe this is a good time to talk about Nicholas Ray and his yeah, whole fucked up family dynamic that is probably being imbued in this film. Well, hit me. All right. Do you know? Wait, do you know, do you know what I'm alluding to? I know nothing about Nicholas Ray. Even <gasps> when I read his name as the director, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of this guy. Okay, let's talk about Nicholas Ray. So Nicholas Ray, here's what you need to know about what was going on in Nicholas Ray's life four years before he made Rebel Without a Cause. He was Hollywood director, made some good films, was married to an actress who I adore, Gloria Graham. Gloria Graham, remember, was in um, 
It's a Wonderful Life. She played Violet, the girl that everybody's like, oh, oh yeah, a little yeah. bit too flirty. He's married to that actress. He has a 13-year-old son from a previous relationship. One day, Nicholas Ray comes home and Gloria Graham is in bed with his 13-year-old son. He catches oh. them together. That is four years before he makes this movie. Wow, okay. He is in such shock. He divorces Gloria Graham, who winds up marrying his son. Ten years later, when that son is of age, Gloria Graham marries his 13-year-old son that she was having an affair How with. How is that legal? Is, is she the mother of that son? No, she was oh, just the okay. stepmother. Oh, sorry. Okay, got it. Don't, we are, our laws are still intact, at least in okay, that good. way. Yes. Um, but no, so he moves out. Uh, he stops kind of being this father to his son, moves into the Chateau Marmont, and basically just becomes like divorce dad party dude. And it's just throw. he has one of those bungalows, you know, back behind the pool of the Chateau yeah. Marmont. And it just becomes like the center of party action. And he's hanging out with a lot of young kids. He's hanging out with teenagers. He's hanging out with James Dean. He's hanging out with Natalie Wood. He's hanging out with Dennis Hopper and that whole crew. And he is just like, I'm cool guy understanding teenager central over here, which also means, I mean, Gore Vidal claimed that Nicholas Ray slept with not just Natalie Wood, but also James Dean, but also Sal Mineo. And wow. of those three, the Salminio one seems like the most in doubt is like probably not. But he was a guy with no boundaries who really thought he had this direct pipeline, I think, into youthful attitudes. Well, and, a uh, literal yeah. direct pipeline, <laughs> if you want. Ah, so the idea that he's making this film about <laughs> 17 year olds who are really screwed up when at that time he had a 17 year old son who was definitely screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I did not realize that. I mean, it's interesting that. You know, this movie is this layered and this complex because there's a lot of issues about fathers and sons and parents and kids. Oh, wow. This is really blowing my mind. It really is. Uh, and also like the Salminio character, you know, the abandoned son, which must be a little bit about how he feels about his own son. You know, he abandoned him like he left, you know, and. You know, yeah. Like, is he just that guy sending checks, you know, to right. take care of the boy? By the way, if you're curious about Gloria Graham just herself, a couple of years ago, Annette Benning did um, a biopic called Film mm. Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which is about Gloria Graham towards the end of her career when she's um, hiding out, doing, a, I think it's like a cheap movie or a cheap play, I forget, in Liverpool, and being a, a drunken mess. Um, so if you want a little bit of Gloria Graham action, there's that. It's not the best film, but as a person who really thinks Gloria Graham had this amazing presence and also lived a completely messy life. I'm glad that that film exists. Wow. This is heavier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it, definitely what I connected to in this film, same way that we talked about 400 blows. It's this neglect of children. It's this misunderstanding of children. It's this need for children to have parental figures who give them something that their friends don't. And I think that's what James Dean is rebelling against. Like Jim Backus is trying so much to be his friend and, and you know, and what we miss from Natalie Wood's dad is he is not checking in with her. Why are you acting like this? What are you doing? He's just ignoring her. You know, everyone is on these islands and these kids are left to their own devices, just kind of coming and going. They're still kids, but they're acting like adults, but yet they are very much like the opening scene of the film, children playing with toys. And when they're fighting they're, they don't even know the stakes and the consequences, like driving a car off a cliff just because like there's a line in the film that I, I, I love so much. It was just sort of like, you know, why do you do this? It's like, well, you got to do something. And that to me is, 
you know, what's going on here. It, it, there's no premeditation to it. You know something? No, what? You read too many comic books. <laughs> well, he's real abstract. He's, um, he's different. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I'm cute, too. Move. <laughs> Is that meaning me? Is that meaning me? What? Chicken. Yes. You shouldn't call me that. Hmm. You're right. You know what? What I kept thinking about hearing that line and kind of adding this all together, along with what I was thinking about in 400 Blows, the word that I keep thinking about is trauma. The idea that these are kids raised by parents who had just been traumatized by the one-two punch of the Great Depression and then World War II. When Truffaut was coming up with the idea for 400 Blows, so much of that to him of his own rotten childhood was because his parents had survived World War II and were a mess and there was no food. And when you do the math here, I mean, it's kind of the same thing for James Dean. Like he would have been born right when the war was starting. They've all grown up with these parents who just had a lot on their mind, you know, huge, huge, overwhelming problems by the time that they became parents themselves. And the idea that they're neglected by their parents, that their parents just can't even focus on these kids that they've had because their parents have been rattled by what they had to live through. And now they're rattled because of that. And then I mean, when you go through the generations, I mean, this generation doesn't seem to do the greatest job with watching their kids either. It's a lot of I learned it from you, dad, the way they are when they're in the pool. And they're like pretending right. to be parents. Right this way. Oh, uh, uh, would you like to rent it? Or are you more in the mood to buy, dear? You decide, darling. Oh, yes. 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 Uh, remember um, our budget. Oh, don't give it a thought. It's uh, only $3 million a month. What? Oh, we can manage that. I'll scrimp and I'll save and I'll work my fingers to the bone. You see, we're newlyweds. Yes. Oh, there's just one thing. What about... Children? Right this way. Yes. See, we really don't encourage them. They're so noisy and troublesome. Don't you agree? Oh, yes, yes. And so terribly annoying when they cry. Oh, yes, I don't know what to do when they cry. Do you, dear? Ah, round them like puppies. Ah. As you see, the nursery is far away from the rest of the house. Hey, you forgot to wind your sundial. And if you have children, you'll find that this is a wonderful arrangement. They can carry on and you'll never even notice. Oh, sunken nursery. In fact, if you lock them in, you'll never have to see them again. <laughs> Much less talk to them. Talk to them? Heavens. Nobody talks to children. No, they just tell them. <laughs> and I guess my question to you is, as a parent, like, is it this kind of trauma leading to distanced parents, leading to more distanced parents. Is that what launched like the generation of parents you have to navigate? Like the, the I'm involved in everything. The, the, the helicopter is the negative word, but it's really like an over the top concerned parenthood that has nothing to do with this. It's a, a feels yeah, like a reaction. It, you know, it's something that I think I wrestle with a lot. You know, there's a book called like duct tape parenting where it's sort of like, let your kids just fight it out and don't worry about them. And, and I think you're constantly fighting this battle of, at least I am, being there for your kids. And I, I, I think I take that more as an emotional support, but 
It's hard because that emotional support sometimes translates into a physical support. And you need these kids to feel what it is like to fail and what it is like not to be the best. But yet we are in a world where, and you know, this is a very like, um, whatever, like macho, like, Hey, you know, back in my day, you know, only there was one first place trophy. Now all these kids are getting trophies. And I agree with that to a certain degree. Like, I think that there should be an excitement and there should be value to being good at something. And, and not everyone is great at everything. And I, I think it's just a mix and you're trying constantly trying to play it. And I think you're also answering to what your parents did for you and, and what are you trying to do for your kids? And for me, the one thing I go back to all the time, and this is so personal, but it is, I want my kids to be able to emotionally connect to me. Like I want them to be able to talk about their feelings. I want them to be able to emote. I want them to be okay to cry. I want them to be okay to feel bad. And this time that we're in this um, quarantine time, that's so hard. They can't go to playgrounds. They can't go out. They can't go to museums. They can't see their friends. There's so many things they can't do and they're wrestling with this. So it's like, how do I create a pathway where I can be their best friend and I can be their confidant and help them? But I'm not their best friend in the sense of I'm not going to discipline them. It's, it's, a, it's a fine, I mean, and I'm dealing with yeah. very, very young kids. But I, I mean, it's something I, I, I wrestle with a lot because you want to be there. You want them to succeed. You want them to be the best. And, and if they are the best, it reflects on you, right? And if they're the worst, it reflects on you. So it's, it's anxiety-filled. And I can see how, you know, I have the tools. I've been to therapy. I've grown up. I've seen different things. I'm an older parent than most parents were in the 50s, right? I have life experiences, so I can bring that all to the table. Um, here in the 50s, you have kids, you know, from parents that are they even really in love? And I know it's a gross generalization, but are they just together? And and how do you become a parent? I would be a terrible parent at 25. I'd be a terrible parent really until, I mean, until I became a parent in my late 30s. You know, it's like I I needed to live that life. And I think in this time, you know, whatever that it's a, such a complicated thing, but you can talk about it and you can see how everybody's experiences here, you know, related to it. It's like, yeah, their parents were distant. That's what happened here. They didn't pay attention to me. They didn't. And this is everybody being neglected. And we also see like Katie in Mean Girls, her parents actually take care of her and she's actually well-adjusted and smart and funny and has a great relationship with her. And, and the school kind of pulls her away. And, you know, because that world that she's in, the parents are shunned. You know, it's like Amy Poehler's character is creating like a weird friendship. So it's, it's, it's a dynamic that we're constantly fighting uh, at all times. And like, how do you keep that closeness and that connection, but let your kid actually be themselves? The long answer that I don't know if makes any <laughs> sense, but uh, it's, it's, it, it's something I think about all the time. No, but I love that. I mean, that emotional idea of like being a person they could talk to, it feels yeah. like that would be the answer for a lot of this in yeah. the film. You know, because well, here the yeah. only person that that asks them really what they're feeling is the cop. And to be honest, the cop really only cares about what James Deed is feeling, which I don't know if right. you were a little bit aggravated by that at the beginning, the way that I was. But, you know, the cop first talks to Salminio and then the cop talks to Natalie Wood. And there's that amazing blocking where you can see everybody through all the different windows oh, in this place. It's just so gorgeous. But with Natalie Wood, he's like, I know what your problem is. And with Sally, he's like, why are you shooting puppies? Okay, well, whatever, go home. And with James Dean, you know, the one that I think reminds him of himself, he's really like talking to him, drawing him out, empathizing with him threefold compared to what he's right. willing to give anybody else. 
which I mean, given everything we're talking about, about discipline and policing, I, I feel like I was like, oh, of course, of course. You're like, I will walk on flames to heal this one boy, but I don't care right. about the other ones. Well, I mean, and and also, I mean, I think that that's sometimes just the way personal relationships go too. you know, you get somebody under your wing, but he was not there for him when he needed him the most. When he went to the police precinct to go and talk to the police officer, he's not there. Now he's not supposed to be there. He's a authority figure. Like he didn't let him down. He just wasn't at the place of his job. But it's interesting that that's the person, the person that he went to in this moment of crisis was the only person who checked in with him. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty uh, interesting point of view about, you know, when James Dean says to Jim Backus, he's like, why don't you ever, you know, stick up for me or, you know, don't like, you know, take my side. Like it's uh, you see that that pain of of wanting to be heard. And I think that's a really important thing, too, of parenting. And especially when you have multiple kids is like hearing them like not it's not enough just to listen, but like really hear what they're doing, because a lot of the times what they're saying they're upset by is not what they are upset by. And it takes time to dig out the real thing. And I think that that's at five and I think that's at 15. Amy, I read one fact about this film and talking about Nicholas Ray and talking about a party guy and talking about James Dean being method. It does not surprise me that in the knife fight scene, they are wearing chain mail and they are using real knives so much so that James <laughs> Dean cuts the actor, Buzz, and Buzz is like, oh shit, he cut my ear, cut. And he's like, don't you ever cut when I'm in the middle of a fucking moment. You know, it's like, like this is, these characters were doing this stuff. And I couldn't help but think, like, is James Dean adding this car chase? And is he adding these things that that felt more dangerous to me because they were something that were coming up for him or or Nicholas Ray? I mean, at this point, who knows? Like, I, I can see from what you described to Nicholas Ray that, Nicholas Ray might have had a knife fight at one point, you know, like this, like a kind of like a fucking stab you, like a, a casual stabathon, you know, because it wasn't like out for killing. They weren't like trying to kill each other to like fuck each other up. Yeah, just a little bit of nicks, man. Just yeah. some pirouettes. I mean, kind of building off of that and the idea, like, was James Dean taking this part too far? Or was he going too far with it? It's interesting because honestly, James Dean wasn't even so much trying to impress Nicholas Ray. Uh, he was trying to impress Elia Kazan because he was like, mm. Elia Kazan is the man. Elia Kazan did Brando. I love Elia Kazan. I want Elia Kazan to be like my guy. Okay. And weirdly, Nicholas Ray is doing the exact same thing. Nicholas Ray is like, he was mentored by Kazan. And he's like, I want to make a film that makes Kazan proud. So Kazan's doing his Brando thing. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be like, I want to live up to you. It's almost like Kazan is their dad. And they're both like, I'm going to impress you, dad. I'm do doing know, it, dad. Do we know what Kazan felt? We do because, you know, Kazan did get to work with Dean and he wasn't really that flattering. It's kind of harsh. Like what Elia Kazan said about um, about uh, what Elia Kazan said about James Dean when he directed him in East of Eden is that he was just really easy to manipulate. That he like mm. got Dean's confidence, made Dean tell him everything that was emotional about his own life. And then he would use it against him to get the emotions out of his scene, which, OK, that is a lot of what the method people did. But, but then he... Because I was kind of snide about it after the fact. Like what he was quoted as saying is that directing him was like directing the faithful lassie. He was so instinctive and so stupid in so many ways. He was not like Brando. People compared them, but there was no similarity. He was a far, far sicker kid. Wow. Like sicker. What do you think that that means? I think he meant that he was just more fundamentally 
screwed up. Right. You know, that he, in a way that he was just reactive to, you know, he was responding to things, but he wasn't, he didn't take him as seriously as he took Brando. And, and you kind of see that like in an actor with that much natural talent, the way that Dean has and the way that Marilyn has, they both had that same insecurity all the time. You know, like Brando would carry around Kierkegaard books to look smart the way that Marilyn was always like, please take me seriously. And they never got it. They never totally right. got that. Well, I think there's also an idea too that Marilyn and James Dean both died early. I mean, Sal Mineo and Natalie Wood also, I mean, all died tragically, but James Dean, you know, dies before this film comes out. And it's interesting because the narrative of him is three films. We don't know where that career goes. We don't know where he goes as a performer. So it's very interesting. Like we have this work, this body of work, which is very, very small and very, uh, hard to kind of make a larger assumption besides the fact of he is James Dean. And the one film I would argue that most people have seen is rebel versus giant and East of Eden. I just think that that's that, that is, you know, the, it's the rebel cutout that you're seeing on Hollywood Boulevard. It's the rebel iconography that we see all the time. So it, it is interesting. Like, I don't know. We only have this much. And I, of course I've only seen one, so I can barely speak to it. Yeah, I, that's really interesting to see that he was a little bit maybe more messed up. And I think, you know, Method applauds that and and can manipulate that. Like, I'm going to give you everything. And I think the best actors know how to access, but not become, right? I, I You know, I, I even think, you know, there's a lot of talk about Daniel Day-Lewis and how he really becomes a character. But I think that Daniel Day-Lewis still is playing a role. And I think some of his method acting or, or being in character comes from the fact that he wants to keep a um, a baseline, right? That's constant. So he feels like he's never forced. But I don't think that he's lost himself in it because whenever you see Daniel Day-Lewis talk, he is almost unrecognizable as a gregarious, like, you're like, oh, I want to hang out with this guy. Like, he's such a, like, there's a personality there where sometimes I feel like De Niro, there's less of a personality. It's interesting, like, different actors can, you know, I, I either become every role I am or I am a person who acts in roles. And and that's, you know, there are, there's a, obviously other flavors, but I mean, that there's an interesting thing there too. Yeah. I mean, one of the gossipy things about this movie's lore is that Christopher Walken really reminded Natalie Wood of James Dean. Oh, and wow. so there is that kind of illusion, like, were they having an affair? Was she so taken with him because he reminded her of this boy that she you know, really knew well. She had worked with James Dean even before they did this movie. They'd done a TV movie together. You know, was she so taken with him that she was having this affair with him, which is maybe what led to yeah. nobody caring if she drowned. Um, and, and yeah, it just kind of spills forward into all these different ways. Um, and, you know, I don't want to like necessarily uh, glorify his passing, but, you know, this movie did come out, uh, like I said, after he had passed away from a car accident. And this PSA also came out, uh, you know, around the time of this film, which I don't know if you've uh, heard, but take a listen. We probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? A good point. I, uh, I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. I took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing, and, uh, and now I drive on the highways, I'm uh, extra cautious, because uh, no one knows what they're doing half the time. You don't know what this guy's going to do with that one. On a track, 
there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and uh, ways of safety. And uh, I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to, to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Well, Gig, I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so interesting that, you know, he is so explicit about the thing that he glorifies in this movie and, uh, and that he ultimately uh, passed away from. Yeah, I mean, the lore around it. Have you heard Alec Guinness talk about his death? No. Okay, you need to hear this. And it was James Dean. And he said, I was in that restaurant, you couldn't get a table. And my name's James Dean. He said, will you come and join me? So we said, yes, very kind of him. And then going back into the restaurant, he said, before we go in, I must show you something. Um, I've just got a new car. And there in the courtyard of this uh, little restaurant was a, I don't know what the car was, some little silver, very smart thing, all done up in cellophane with a bunch of roses tied to its bonnet. Uh, and I said, how fast do you, can you drive in this? He said, oh, I can do 150 in it. And I said, have you driven it? He said, no, I've never been in it at all. And some strange thing came over me, some almost different voice. And I said, look, I won't join your table unless you want me to, but I must say something. Please do not get into that car, because if you do, and I looked at my watch, and I said, if you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, whatever the date was, uh, 10 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, next Thursday, you'll be dead if you get into that car. I thought, nonsense. Someone had dinner, we had a charming dinner, and he was dead the following uh, Thursday afternoon in that car. Oh my God, that is, that just gave me chills. Yeah, there's something about hearing it in that Obi-Wan prophetic voice. Yeah, wow. Well, Amy, there's a couple more things I want to talk to you about, but I feel like it's about time to see what people thought about this film. Were there people who didn't get it, didn't like it, didn't appreciate this rebel? There were. It was fairly polarizing. The response to it reminded me a touch of kids. You know, um, when kids came out and everybody was just like, ah, this makes me feel things and I'm angry and I'm upset and I don't know if I can like this or not. It felt like it was a little bit hard for people to see it straight. But especially given the case that, you know, if you're going to watch Roll Without a Cause, you're watching it being so aware of his death the whole time and being unable to shake it and it being so raw. So I think that from the response when this movie came out, people knew it was special, but they also felt so creepy. And that creepy cast a little bit of a pallor over the, re- the reviews, which were positive, but not always raving. Right. You can't really talk about someone who died tragically, negatively in a review about a movie where it is arguably, you know, one of his last pieces of work. I mean, it's, you know, I think we watch it with Heath Ledger too. I mean, mm-hmm. that performance is amazing, but it, you can't even really have a dialogue about that or Brandon Lee in a way it just, uh, and, and rightly so you shouldn't uh, it's, but it's, it's a, yeah. it's a complex thing to navigate. 
Especially not that month after. Like I imagine, yeah. I mean, you know that one of my favorite movies of all time is Synecdoche, New York. And oh, if yeah. I had seen that movie for the first time the month after Philip Seymour Hoffman died, I couldn't, I couldn't have talked about it really. I right. mean, if I had seen that movie the month after Philip Seymour Hoffman died, maybe I could have written a review, but honestly, I would only be talking about him and his performance. And I probably wouldn't even be able to focus on like the camera work, which is actually, I think, very cool in this film. You know, the staging oh, and everything yeah. like that. You can't really focus on those things because you're so overwhelmed by what you're watching. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're living through that right now with Chadwick. You know, it's yeah. sort of, uh, you know, you will forever look at these roles that he had. And I think, you know, he also has a, a smaller body of work, or at least, you know, based on, I think, what everyone ex- expected, you know, a giant career. Like, you know, you look at it and, it and you'll never be able to truly separate the fact that this person was taken way too soon. And, and, and you give so much, I mean... Whew, it's it's a lot that really yeah. that yeah that was you know it's interesting we're talking about this in the week following uh yeah. Chadwick's death which was just a yeah really really got me did that get you I mean like in really a way hard. that yeah really really hard, hard. I, I it's strange I mean if we're gonna I guess it is appropriate to talk about this when we're talking about a Dean movie you know, I've always been uncomfortable with that public mourning that happens on Twitter when me somebody too. famous dies like I usually don't chime in on that I just sort of read and listen and think because I'm I don't the I feel same like what do you need way. me to do here I make this? fun of people who do it but yeah I, yeah not everything needs you to comment on it you know exactly but, but that one that one that one really hurt I was really in a mood for for several days about it and we, yeah. we watched um get on up that weekend which is my favorite of his performances mm. um I love that movie so much. If people haven't seen Get On Up, I can't recommend it highly enough. I, yeah, I really, it's a great I movie. really, that was the movie where I was like, who is this movie star? He, to me, I mean, I felt the same exact way. I broke my tradition of not commenting because I was so overwhelmed. And there's some, I mean, there's so many elements to it. And, and you know, it's such a bigger conversation. But, uh, you know, it's amazing to see someone who has, Again, a handful of work and but how much that handful of work affected a culture. And I think that Chadwick Boseman will be forever known uh, the same way that James Dean will be known because the roles are iconic. They are I mean, and they're perfect Hollywood movies because many of them are biopics, which I think mm-hmm. have a longer life in, in many respects. And then one is this iconic superhero film that I think, you know, all of a sudden is going to elevate Black Panther. You know, it will always be, it's just, it's an amazing body of work that I think now is, you know, I don't know, it, oddly elevated even higher than it was when it was, when he was alive and, and should be, he was great. Yeah. Amazing. It does feel awful to have really admired and respected somebody and suddenly realize you admire and respect them even double. And yeah. you can't ever let them know. The story of what he was hiding and what he was going mm-hmm. through, I think that that got me. And the fact that he yeah. not only continued to do the work, but do the work in the charity and do the work with, like, just put himself out there and his positivity. I I met him once and I was with my dad and I got my dad to meet Chadwick and it was awesome. Like, he was <laughs> so amazing to my dad. It... uh I will forever remember that interaction because it was right at the height of Black Panther. It was at an Oscar party, you know, so he is the toast of the party. He's Chadwick Boseman, you know, he, and I think, uh, and 
he was so, I mean, and everyone has said it, but to a point that I, it, it is forever burnt into my head how lovely he was. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, I, I couldn't help but think of him watching this, thinking of James Dean yeah. and the legacy and everything like that. It is really powerful when we lose somebody in the pop culture who makes even us civilians, well, I'm a civilian, you're not, um, mm-hmm. want to live a better life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it'd be like selfless. And I 100% agree. But let's hear what these reviewers have to say about the recently yeah. deceased James Dean. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I pulled a review from the New York Daily News. And the New York Daily News calls it, quote, double grim, horrendous in text, depressing, because it is a constant reminder of tragic death, of the tragic death of the star James Dean. And it goes on to say that as an honest, purposeful drama of juvenile hardness and violence, the film just doesn't measure up. The hoodlums of this story are not the underprivileged children of the slums. They are the high school set of an average American town. The trouble with the story is that it doesn't set a straight course and follow it. It goes off in too many directions to prove nothing more than the true character of the protagonist. And to the parents goes the blame for the children's behavior. From the light they are shown in, fathers should all be under psychiatric treatment and mothers should be killed after childbirth. Wow. Rough. Yeah. So they really took kind of a, a I know how the world works yeah. spin on it, which I mean, at this time, it is true that in the early 1950s, juvenile crime increased by 40 percent. So there was this whole media freak out about teenage behavior. But I found it a little patronizing that this New York critic was like, surely suburban kids, that's just false. Or you know, that seemed to be what they were saying. And surely the parents aren't to blame. It felt very right. stuffy. No, I 100 percent agree. I also think and I. I know we just talked about it, but the idea of seeing a character in a film partake in a race, which is also the way that this character died, this actor died in real life. That must have been really, really hard. Like the coincidence of that. I mean, I don't even know how you could focus on the film. I I imagine that scene elevates to such a a degree when you know that this is how he just died, uh, racing a car. It, It uh, and then you see him survive, and then there's something like amazing about that, and that's caught on on film. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot. And by the way, while we're kind of talking about this, if people haven't seen the documentary Love and Tosha, mm-hmm. I really want to take this moment to recommend it. Have you heard of that documentary? It's about no. Anton Yelchin. No. Who played um, yeah. Chekhov, of course, in the Star Trek films and did a ton of stuff. And he was an actor that I've absolutely loved because I will stand by this, that Alpha Dog is the great unappreciated film of the 2000s and that was the film where i first fell in love with him as an actor and when you watch love and tosha his career makes so much more sense you know he was crushed to death accidentally by his own car and in the last couple years of his life i was like i swore when i saw uh alpha dog that i'd watch every movie anton yelchin ever did but i can't he's making like 90 movies a year how am i going to keep up with this kid what is happening and what i didn't know until i saw the documentary is that he had always felt he was going to die young. He was given a diagnosis when he was a kid that was basically like, you are not going to live a long life. And in those last years, as he got sicker, he wanted to do all the work. He wanted to do all the work he didn't think he'd get a chance to do. I didn't even know he was sick. Um, Yeah, he hid it too. He didn't tell anybody about it. Wow. I, uh, this has really gone down a path. I mean, we've gone from- I mean, gosh, so well, which so of the many... dead actor clips do you want to hear? You want to hear Natalie Wood talk about this movie? You want to hear Sal Minio? Sal Minio was shot. Natalie Wood drowned. Who should we oh, hear from? Oh, God. Well, you, dealer's choice. Uh, I have two ways to bring us out of this to have a, a, 
a positive ending of this episode. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. Let's listen to both of them. Let's listen to both of them. Let's start with um, Salmonio talking about the death scene. But what I had felt, uh, strangely enough, was that here was a chance for me to feel what it would be like for someone close, someone that I idolized, to be grieving for me and for me to experience a, what kind of grief that would be, what would he be like, what would he sound like, what would he be thinking. And I, I wanted to do that scene over and over again. And each time we did do it, he would position me in, in, a, in a kind of um, position that, that would work for him to get the emotion going. And it was very moving for me because he was very moved and, and um, when you see the scene you'll see how, how uh, he broke up in that that moment and it was seeing your idol there expressing his grief and that was incredible and immediately after the scene I noticed that there was a, a change in the relationship he was very protective and that whole day he would never let me out of his sight he was always there and that felt nice that death scene by the way I mean, we haven't really gotten into this, but this is a movie where one of our three kids is shot by the cops. You know, he also shoots another teen who is not really that much of a threat to him in the moment. Like, there's a lot going on here. Like, that is, yeah, the cops are, there's a lot going on in this scene and a lot going on in that moment and the confusion of that moment. Everything comes back to what we're living in right now, which is heavy, heavy stuff. Well, now let's hear from Natalie Wood. This, uh, both of those interviews, by the way, were um, from 1974. So this is Natalie Wood right before. Now, what about Dean himself in those days? What can you remember about him that made him so intriguing? Well, again, the thing about Jimmy that strikes me now in looking back, I mean, at the time, he seemed like a great nonconformist and a mm. great rebel and an eccentric and all of that. But really, he was eccentric only, if, by, by today's standards, he wouldn't be eccentric at all, I don't think. I mean, he wouldn't wear ties, he wouldn't wear suits, he wouldn't go to social functions, he wouldn't do the Hollywood thing, you know, he wouldn't do what the studios expected him to do. But yet today, many actors don't do any of those things. Right. You know, most young people don't wear, you know, don't get dressed up and, and do all of that. Most old people don't. Exactly. I mean, nobody does. But I, I think... Um, you know, he was not uh, into drugs or anything uh, very spooky or weird. I think he was a very healthy young Spiritual, man. Spiritual, I always heard Yeah, it's very moody and poetic, but yeah. not uh, freaked out or drugged out or anything like that. I love uh, back in the 70s when the host didn't even have to really articulate. <laughs> no, but I like that she makes that argument that he wasn't even a rebel in the way that the rebels who would come after him, you yeah. know, would be like Den Dennis Hopper, who's in, in, he is in this film. Oh yeah, my gosh, you know, playing so much one of the movie. rebels in the background. Kind of the story is Dennis Hopper is one of the people who is has been. He was very loud in the years after this in giving James Dean the credit for being the director. He says more than Nicholas Ray, which again I think is right. a little unfair to the to beautiful work that I think Nicholas Ray does in this film. Well, I think but, they could one could work on the visuals and one could work on the emotions, and I think that they probably did bond over certain things. But I could see James Dean really directing other actors to match his style of acting, especially yeah. the younger kids, right? Right, like you know that are his age. I mean, but whatever, who knows. I trust, yeah, I, I mean, trust yeah, Hopper. he was a, definitely a huge influence on Hopper himself. But I also think part of why Hopper was so mad is that Hopper was also sleeping with Natalie Wood. Yes. Uh, and when he realized that 
Nicholas Ray was also sleeping with Natalie Wood, there was a bit of static between them. And Nicholas Ray got mad and just stopped giving um, Dennis Hopper any lines. Like you'll notice at the beginning of the film, he has a couple lines and then he's just basically silent from then on. Nicholas Ray was like, screw this guy. I'm wondering also if this is a subtle dig that Nicholas Ray is taking at Natalie Wood by calling her a prostitute in the beginning. If there's a, there's an energy there that he's trying to, I don't know. There's so much to unpack. I mean, we haven't really even touched on the fact that he's 43 and she's 16. I mean, so there, there's that. I mean, to the point that even when he was putting Natalie Wood in costume for this, he was like, you know, she doesn't have big enough breasts for this role. We need to design a special push-up bra for her. And the costume designer was like, how does he? Okay. And just made her a special push-up bra. All right. I want to talk about something to get us out of all this darkness. Uh, (laughs) But I think it's good that we got to that darkness place. Amy, first of all, how did I not know that Marty McFly shared a similar trait with James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause? The idea that he hated being called chicken, I did not know came from Rebel Without a Cause. My entire life was like, this is such a dumb plot point in Back to the Future. Like, he's afraid of being called chicken. Like, what the fuck is that? And when I saw this, I was like, oh, my God. How did I, what? Like, I love that that is an homage to Rebel Without a Cause. And <laughs> and there is there is a similarity to Marty and Biff in this world. Um, you know, like, Marty is not a nerd, nor is he a tough guy, cool guy. But I, I, I saw so much of Back, I saw so much Rebel in Back to the Future that it just kind of blew my mind. I was so excited about that because I love that movie so much. And to find out that there was more that I didn't even know. Uh, It was really great. Hold on. You know what I just realized? What? Back to the Future Day, the day that Marty McFly goes back to, is October 21st, 1955. So Marty McFly goes back to this one week before people see Rebel Without a Cause. Wow. I love it. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, it's November 5th, 1955. Oh, yeah. November 5th. Yeah. In Back to the Future. Yeah. 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 November 5th. Yeah. That's 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, weird. When I just Googled it, it says October 21st. Who the fuck said that? What? No, yeah, because I definitely remember that's what the flux capacitor says. Exactly. That's that's I, I it's burned into my memory. Christopher yeah. Lloyd saying it. November fifth, nineteen fifty-five. Yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why does the internet say that's so weird? Okay. Hey, producer Josh Popigan here to say November fifth is the date Marty McFly traveled back to in Back to the Future. October twenty-first is the date Marty McFly traveled forward to in Back to the Future Part Two. So mystery solved. Back to the show. Well, yeah, I mean, the year that Marty McFly goes back to is 1955. He goes back in the fall of 1955, which makes me surprised that nobody in the film was like, why are you just quoting James Dean to us? <laughs> um, now, Amy, this is what I really wanted to talk to you about. And I've been holding my tongue the entire episode. I had a mind explosion, full on meltdown when I watched this film, because not only am I watching how it's permeated our culture, but it permeated one film, one specific director, one iconic film so clearly that it makes me appreciate how utterly bizarre this movie is even more. Can you guess the movie I'm thinking of? I don't know why, but in my head, I just was like, he's going to say Crank 2. <laughs> no, I wish. The Room. This is the room. (laughs) I didn't realize that Rebel Without a Cause is the fucking room. And I'm in Disaster Artist. (laughs) And I've watched the room. And I'm like, he 
Wazo clearly watched this, didn't quite understand it, and took all everything that doesn't make sense about the room is because of this. Like the weird kid that hangs around with uh, with Tommy <gasps> is is Salminio. Oh, he doesn't have a father. It's it's the um, it's there's so much of the I love you, I love you. This all the drama. I used to think it was Tennessee Williams, by the way, of a space alien, and now I go, it's a space alien interpreting rebel without a cause. I mean, it's, if you put them over each other, I mean, you know, there's not car race and stuff like that, but there is the emotional thrust of this film. Like I kept on going, Whoa, that's, that's the room. He's doing the room. You know, just the, the intense emotion, the screaming, why are you tearing me apart? The body movement? Like it is, he is doing his impression of James Dean acting. And I know they talked about that a little bit in disaster artists and in the book, but I couldn't, I mean, I always said, oh, that's interesting, but it is like an impression. It's not like an interpretation. It is a full-on embodied impression. He thinks he is James Dean. And wow, I want to go watch The Room again. <laughs> that makes me wonder, does the Dean ethos then for sure only work if you are either young or talented? Like, does this exaggerated drama only work if you're playing a teenager who lives exaggerated or is is it true that if Tommy Wiseau was just talented, it would also be working as an adult, well, as an adult with his a, own apartment? I think that there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think that the the film Rebel Without a Cause was directed really well and and rip, written very well. I, there's too much to go on to say that. Look, I think that we've seen that acting style. I think that we've seen people who can really go in those places, like a Tom Hardy. I think you know really can chew up scenery like that and and make it still grounded in some way. I, I think Tommy. God bless him. You know, his writing, directing and acting all combined didn't necessarily add up. It wasn't like, oh, the room is better if you put it in a different thing or the room would have been better for the different acting style. It's just an interesting uh, that acting style got put on this other thing. I mean, you know, put Tom Cruise <laughs> in the room or put Denzel Washington in the room. It's going to be the room. Uh, it may be slightly better, but not that much better. But, you know, what's funny is when I watch this movie again this time. I I saw the Tennessee Williams. Like Tennessee Williams is what popped out to me when I was watching Rebel. Mm. That whole so, last scene when they're luring Salmonio yes. out of the planetarium, yes. all of that was streetcar. I want to actually listen to just a little bit of that. The hypnotic music in the background is so amazing. But it is that I like I'm soothing this insane person who's had a break and I'm taking you out. And I was like, oh, you just straight up put like the, the streetcar named Desire ending on this. Come on. No? Not ready to come out yet? Oh. No? Okay. Promise you nothing will happen if you do. No. Are you cold? Here. It's warm. Here. My jacket. It's warm. Can I keep it? Well, what do you think? <laughs> hey, now can I have the have the gun, Plato? You want to give it to me? My gun? Yeah, in your pocket. Give it to me. Yeah, you know, and just while we're talking about the planetarium, I know we're wrapping up. Uh, I will just say that I love the idea that the planetarium, you know, puts out this big thought. At the beginning of the film, it's it's sort of like this idea of, you know, the earth is going to explode. So what like no one cares. It's not worth it's like 
we see the futile nature of humanity in that scene in the planetarium. Like, and we will be gone and the earth will be gone. And, and that idea of live for today because, you know, you're not given tomorrow. There's a, that idea like that permeates this film. I think that's why the kids are reckless. That's why they're trying to find meaning in something because they're living as if, why, why do we have, what do we have to live for? The heavens are still and cold once more. In all the immensity of our universe and the galaxies beyond, the Earth will not be missed. Through the infinite reaches of space, the problems of man seem trivial and naive indeed. And man, existing alone, seems himself an episode of little consequence. That's all. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. You're right. I think, you know, what I was saying that I was thinking about trauma, I think what I was really thinking is kind of that idea of here you are and it's the Cold War is beginning and everybody is just expecting that you're going to get blown up by something. Mm. And what are you alive for? Like you've seen the world get destroyed in your lifetime. I mean, this isn't, you know, my idea. I don't want to take any credit for it. But like the idea of the kids playing chicken has been said as a metaphor for just the Cold War in general for like a nuclear standoff, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, your one car is Russia, one car is the United States. And they're just going to rush towards the edge of the cliff and who's going to survive. So I, oh, I, I do really feel like there's that aggressive futility in here. Like the adults, oh my gosh. Yeah. The adults in the room, the people leading these countries have fucked up. And what's the point of any of us behaving if we're all going to die? And finally, I'll ask you this one question before we kind of put it to the aliens. Do you think that Truffaut stole the drinking of the milk from Rebel <laughs> for 400 Blows? You know, Truffaut called Nicholas Ray, quote, the poet of nightfall. Mm. And so he was a big fan of his. I love that line. It makes me think of that scene at the planetarium where Dean's face is kind of bleeding in and out of the darkness, which absolutely, you know, um, Damon Chazelle just ripped off for La La Land. You have that exact shot when Emma Stone runs into the movie theater when they're playing uh, Rebel Without a Cause to go on her date with him. And right. he does just the same thing. That's a lot of why that movie frustrates me. All he does is make illusions. He doesn't own anything. But um, but yeah, I, Nicholas Ray was definitely one of those people on the list of of who knew, who the French knew it was pointing to is like, this guy makes a movie. Right. I like that. All right. So Amy... What do the aliens think of Rebel? What do you think? I'll be honest. If we're talking about what the aliens would need to see all of us, to see all of what we've done here on Earth, I don't know if I need them to see Rebel. Mm. Is that cold? I, I kind no. of, I feel like, to your point, if it weren't for James Dean being incredible, I feel like I could make peace with letting this film go. I'm upset that this film is not on the AFI list because I mm-hmm. do think it is better than some of the films that we watched on the AFI list. I think it captures an iconic performance by an iconic actor that I think that that is what we're trying to celebrate. That's what the AFI and that's what we're trying to do. Like, what are the films that have a lasting legacy? I think you cannot make a list that doesn't involve James Dean or Marilyn Monroe or John Wayne. Uh, and because they are the face of Hollywood. On yeah. some level, you know, whether or not it's the movies that they have, there there needs to be representation there. They are part of our culture, the movie going culture. In 100 years, people are still going to be looking at James Dean as we are still looking at him in 2020 uh, for a man who died in 1955. Uh, 
Yeah, but, they really are like our hieroglyphs. Like, or, or you, when you're in Egypt, and you're just like, there it is. There's a giant statue of Nefertari. You know, they are our yeah. icons. So in that way, while this film doesn't necessarily represent to me a typical teen experience or even the makeup of what typical teen life looks like, I think that the aliens would have to appreciate and uh, and be blown away by a performance of an actor of this caliber. And I yeah. think not seeing the other two, which is a bold statement for me to say, this was going to be the one that they have to see because this is the one that is the most iconic. So in that way, I think the aliens need to see it. I don't know if the aliens need to see this as a definitive high school movie. No. I don't think it's that. Um, I, don't I don't think, think so either. That. Although maybe the aliens will understand how our how our planet played chicken so long that now the only thing that survives of us are these movies floating out into space. We got to finish this up to get that uh, get him up in space in time. Uh, well, Amy, you know we are gonna kind of uh, move forward here and kind of look at a whole different uh, high school. Uh, you know we are going to Cooley High, which is a film uh, I've never seen before uh, that looks to be uh, quite fun and very different than what we've already been talking about. Here, take a listen to a little bit of the trailer of Cooley High. It was the best of times. They were the best of friends. They made the best of memories. Why don't you go somewhere? Your face is mine. Those cool, cool days. Cooley High. I'm excited about this movie. Uh, I, I love kind of discovering these new films. I'm finding myself really invigorated by our own list. Like there's something, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a drudge of the AFI list. Sometimes you'd be like, oh, that's really great. And I don't know. It's maybe it's because we are dictating what the list is, but, um, <laughs> but there it is. We're the little uh, dictators. Yeah, we are. I mean, uh, although we still high, don't know what the audience is going to dictate for our audience. No, we but. don't still get your votes in. Um, uh, Cooley High is available on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there uh, if you have a subscription to Amazon. It's for free, and it's also on Vudu. So check out Cooley High, uh, and I can't wait to talk to you about that next week. And reminder to get on Geneva. The link will be in our show notes, uh, and this is where conversations are happening about Unspooled. It's a safe, nice environment. It is a place for people who don't like social media to do social media things. Uh, so there we go. Uh, Amy, any anything else you want to say before we get out of here? Yeah, Paul. You're tearing me apart! <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week on Unspooled. This is Mary Holland. You may know me from Happiest Season or Veep or The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. Or you may know me as Janice Cramps. Huh? 
I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, 15 years old. Comedy Bang Bang is about to get its driver's permit. I'm so excited for it. And I'm, you know, really grateful because Comedy Bang Bang has brought me so much joy as a listener and a performer. And I'm just very grateful for this community that we have in Comedy Bang Bang. You can hear me and a lot of other very funny people on Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Tune in. Happy birthday.